At the start, I want to acknowledge some of you listening are suffering unimaginable pain and loss right now. And this must be so hard for each of you. Tonight's talk is not an attempt to immediately solve what you are struggling with. It's not designed to offer specific advice or the answer to take away your pain so that you can move on. Because there's probably nothing more challenging to our sense of self and what gives our lives meaning than a significant loss or a major bereavement. Grief is a natural response to loss. And the more significant the loss, the more intense the grief is likely to be. Grief is expressed in many ways and it can affect every part of your life. Your emotions, thoughts and behaviour, beliefs, physical health, your sense of self and identity, and your relationships with others. Grief can leave you feeling sad, anxious, shocked, regretful, relieved, overwhelmed, isolated, irritable, or numb. Grief has no set pattern. Everyone experiences grief differently. And some people may grieve for weeks and months, while others may describe their grief lasting for years. The late Queen Elizabeth II, in her message of support to New York after the terrible events of September the 11th, 2001, famously wrote, These are dark and harrowing times for families and friends of those who are missing or who suffered in the attack. My thoughts and my prayers are with you all now and in the difficult days ahead. But nothing that can be said can begin to take away the anguish and the pain of these moments. Grief is the price we pay for love. They were strangely passionate words for a monarch not known for her outbursts of emotion. But few realise that one of her oldest and most trusted confidants, her former racing manager, Lord Carnarvon, suffered a heart attack and died the same day that the Twin Towers fell. Adding to the Queen's private sorrow, his sudden death cemented her connection to a date which, in the words of Franklin Roosevelt, will live in infamy. So when she wrote those words, she really knew how people were feeling. The Queen was actually quoting Dr Colin Murray Parks, an English psychiatrist who wrote, The pain of grief is just as much a part of life as the joy of love. It is perhaps the price we pay for love, the cost of commitment. To ignore this fact or to pretend that it is not so is to put an emotional, on emotional blinkers which leave us unprepared for the losses that will inevitably occur in our lives and unprepared to help others cope with losses in theirs. Nothing yet lasts forever. This is a hard truth, but it is a truth, and we are best to acknowledge it. Yet for many people, this raises the hard question we have posed to answer in tonight's talk. Why does God allow evil and suffering? If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why do some get sick and die? Why does my sibling have a disease or suffer with mental disorders when I'm just fine? Why doesn't God intervene to prevent women and children from being abused? Why do I live in plenty while others in situations of poverty, war and adversity? Where is the justice in that? Why are there fires, pandemics, floods, earthquakes and other natural disasters? This is a universal experience and while we might ask 
Why can't everything just be happy? This is a question that causes thousands of men and women of faith to stumble. And this is a key argument of atheists, and often an argument that we might struggle to answer. Sometimes people place all the suffering on humankind themselves. If it wasn't for humankind, they say, there would be no wars or abuse or crime, for example. But that doesn't explain human suffering due to causes outside human control, like disease or natural disasters, the one in a million humans who are struck with lightning each year, why your neighbour's house might be burnt down but yours left untouched by the same bushfire, why we eventually all die. And it's common to start these talks by placing all the blame on Adam and Eve. Because you might argue, if they had not sinned, then humankind would not have been subject to death and, and so it really is all their fault. But we seriously struggle with a view of God's purpose that just makes the life of Jesus a contingency plan. To have an only begotten son simply because Adam and Eve failed. Sometimes people say that God let us suffer in order to bring us closer to him. But that can't really be the full story. Would you ever let your own children suffer terribly when instead you could effortlessly save them only because you wanted to have a closer relationship with them? In any case, none of these ideas explain why God, who knows the very end from the beginning, would give Adam and Eve a test that he knew they were going to fail. If he had to give them a test and he already knew the outcome of the test, why didn't he just give them a free will test that he knew they would pass? Yet, even if they did pass, presumably one of their children through eternity was going to fail eventually. What's more, are billions of human deaths and untold suffering really a fair consequence of Adam and Eve eating some fruit they shouldn't have in a garden one day? Does the punishment really meet the crime? And I suppose all of these are reasons why it is a question. But what if the answer wasn't really that hard after all? In fact, is it possible that God left the key to the answer of all this right in front of us all along? And maybe, just as the Queen hinted, the power lies in the contrast. Grief really is a price we pay for love, and for a very good reason. What I will put forward now is very simple. Most of the big things in life we understand through opposites. That is to say, when we are learning about up and down, did your teacher present them one at a time? Maybe up one week and then down the next? Or did you learn about them at the same time, the one in opposition to the other? I'll suggest it's the latter. Because what does up mean if you don't even know what down is? And that is what I mean when I say we often understand through opposites. If you lived in a world where the temperature was only 25 degrees centigrade and nothing else, do you think you would learn the meaning of hot or cold? If every sound was only 60 dB, 
Do you think you would learn the meaning of loud and soft? Do you think you would know the meaning of dangerous driving if there was never a consequence? And the answer is, of course, no, because we can only understand these and many other basic concepts through their opposites. Fast or slow, light or heavy, smooth or rough, plenty versus famine, easy versus hard, you get the idea. And the interesting part comes when we take this truth a little further and we apply it to the character of God. The Bible is clear that the overall purpose of God with the creation, his master plan behind everything, is to fill the earth with sons and daughters who have developed his character like children who copy a father. And the grand purpose of God has always been to expand his glory through beings who willingly become like him. He purposes to develop and thereby add more members to his family from this creation. A family which all have the same character as himself. And I'll say that again very slowly and deliberately. He purposes to develop and thereby add more members to his family which have the same characteristics as himself. If we understand that most of the big things in life are learned through opposites, then how are we going to learn about God's character and so fulfil his purpose? Exodus chapter 34 famously lists some of God's attributes. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You can see here that the first of God's characteristics listed is mercy. Now, applying the same reason as before, could it be possible to learn about mercy and what that means in a world that nobody ever needs it? In a world that always goes well? The answer is no, it wouldn't be. How could anyone ever learn about mercy if nobody ever saw it or if nobody ever gave it or if nobody ever needed it? It would be like trying to understand hot and cold in a world that was always at 25 degrees centigrade. It would not have any meaning at all. What about the second attribute of God's character, grace? Here again we have the same dilemma. How could anyone learn about grace if nobody in humanity ever needed it? And what exactly would it mean to be kind to someone if everybody you ever met had always been completely satisfied anyway? Where is the good in a cup of cold water if nobody has ever been thirsty? Of course, it's the same answer, that the concept of grace is also left utterly without meaning unless sometimes people actually need it. And we can repeat this for every attribute of God in Exodus chapter 34 that defines his character. Slow to anger, loving, faithful, forgiving, just. How can you be slow to anger without a cause for anger? What does it mean to be loving if there was not the possibility of showing indifference? How can you learn about forgiving iniquity and sin if there is no iniquity and sin, or if there was not the possibility we might not forgive anybody? None of these attributes would mean anything at all without their opposites. And as I said earlier, the power 
is in the contrast. For good to have any meaning as good, then there must also be evil, at least for a while. For joy and peace to have any meaning as true joy and peace, then there must be a period of suffering, sorrow and pain before God can wipe away the tears. So we've made the case that in order to learn about God's character, we must also experience bad times as well as good. If we want to fully experience the smooth side of the coin, then we must also flip it to the rough surface because it's only the contrast that gives either any real meaning. And that just seems to be <clears throat> how things are. So that's all very logical and has the ring of truth. But we can do better than a thought experiment. This contrast between good and evil, suffering and joy, has always been at the heart of God's message and has always been inevitable. In fact, it is the very first theme of the entire Bible. Come back, if you could, to Genesis and chapter 1. In Genesis and chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. The evening and the morning were the first day. Did you see that in verse 4? God saw the light, that it was good. And he divided the light from the darkness. Just as darkness in opposition gives meaning to light, so evil in opposition gives meaning to good. Of course, in hindsight, we know this separation of evil and good is going to be the grand overarching theme of the Bible. And this separation between light and dark, good and evil, the one has always defined the other right from the very beginning. This idea continues to be developed in the early verses of Genesis chapter 1. On day two, God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And so God divided the waters which were under the waters from the waters, he divided the waters from the waters um, which were above and below and in the middle he made a firmament. On day three, in verse nine to 10, we read that God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And so the waters uh, were gathered into one place and the dry appeared. And God called the dry earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And if you look down upon our globe, you can clearly see those separations. Light from darkness, the firmament between the water above and below, and the seas separated from the earth. But the climax of the idea in the creation record takes shape in the form of a very special tree that was planted in the midst of the garden mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. If we come across to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, we read, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But... 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So, in the Garden of Eden, there was just one tree that Adam and Eve were not permitted to eat. The implication was that as soon as you ate of its fruit, you would understand both good and evil. And you can see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, where the serpent picked up on that point when he was talking to Eve. He said to Eve, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, you shall be as the angels, knowing good and evil. So good and evil is clearly intended here as a contrast. However, there's yet another observation we can take, which seems to be supremely important. And that is that there was just one tree of the knowledge of both good and evil. You might have thought that God would create two trees, one for the knowledge of good, which God would have encouraged Adam to eat, and the other for the knowledge of evil, which God would have discouraged Adam from eating. But he did not do that. There was just one tree which taught about both good and evil. So why would God limit Adam's access to the knowledge of good by putting this one tree out of bounds? Didn't God want Adam to know about good? After all, we've read the first part of Genesis about how good the creation was. So why forbid Adam and Eve to know about good? Well, the answer lies in the fact that there was just one tree because there is no such thing as knowledge of good without the knowledge of evil. They must go together. And just as we can only comprehend light through darkness or hot through cold or loud through soft, so we can only truly understand good by contrast with evil in exactly the same way as the other concepts we have considered. There is no other way God can teach us this. The joys in your lives are only your joys because your trials have been your trials. And following this thought to its conclusion, perhaps seemingly self-contradictory, God prevented Adam and Eve from eating of the fruit in the garden because they could never properly learn good unless they had sinned, so that they indeed could learn about good. Otherwise, what did Adam or Eve know about mercy before the fall? What did they know about grace or justice? And remember that earlier in Genesis 1 verse 4, there was already a contrast between light and darkness, good and evil. It was always inevitable that humankind would face darkness to learn about good. Challenging. But if God gave Adam a test that was apparently certain to fail, what was the alternative? In any case, the sufferings and sacrifice of Jesus was never just an alternative plan. His life and his death were always at the centre of God's purpose and at the core of his creation. More proof that in order to learn about good, we must also learn about evil, comes in the very next section of, in Genesis chapter 2. Immediately after the law of the tree, ask yourself what God is trying to do in verses 18 to 20. And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. 
And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. Of course, what follows in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 21 to 25 is the creation of Eve, who was a good companion for Adam. But again, it's the same lesson. Before Adam could understand his companionship with Eve, he first had to confront what must have been an alarming reality, a lack of companionship when one by one the animals passed by. If you want to have knowledge of good, then you must have knowledge of evil. So Adam appreciated Eve only through the contrast, only because of the opposite. You know, the suffering that we see about us is horrible. Sometimes we see it in the news, in a faraway country, sometimes in our families, sometimes in our friends, sometimes in our own lives. Yet as painful as this can be, the presence of evil in this world is absolutely necessary for the development of God's character in his children. That is the reason, above all else, that God allows evil and suffering. And it's clear from Genesis chapter 2 that the knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil must come together. Only through the existence of suffering can God one day fill the earth with his glory and his goodness. So what we're going to do now is going to ask Dan just to come forward and to read that psalm for us, Psalm 107. As we read through, keep in mind the truth. Most of the big things in life we learn through contrasts. If you want to have knowledge of good, then you must have knowledge of evil. And the presence of evil in this world is absolutely necessary for the development of God's character in his children. So I ask Dan to come forward, and maybe for those younger ones, I've put up there on the screen if you can see it, some uh, themes that keep being repeated through the psalm. Thanks, Dan. Psalm 107, reading from verse 8. O that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness, such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labour. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and brake their bands in sunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he hath broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. 
For he commandeth, and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro, and stagger like a drunkard man, and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. O that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turneth rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness, for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water, and dry ground into water springs. And there he maketh the hungry to dwell, that they may prepare a city for habitation, and sow the fields and plant vineyards, which may yield fruits of increase. He blesseth them also, so that they are multiplied greatly, and suffereth not their cattle to decrease. Again, they are minished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. He poureth contempt upon princes, and causeth them to wander in the wilderness, where there is no way. Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction, and maketh him families like a flock. The righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. Whoso is wise, and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Thank you, Dan. You'll see some recurring themes in that psalm, and it's certainly not the purpose tonight to expound that. There's a couple of little things that I just want to bring out. The first part of the psalm, verses 1 to 30, I'm entitled, Oh, that man would give thanks unto the Lord for his covenant mercy. And the reason for that is you see that that is the words that are repeated in verse 8, 15, verse 21, and verse 31. And as we read through those verses in, in that little section, we see that there are trials that are brought upon ourselves because of our own decisions and actions. See there in verse 11, because they rebelled against the words of God and contend the counsel of the Most High, therefore he brought down their heart with labour. Again in verse 17, fools because of their transgression and because of their iniquities are afflicted. There's trials that are brought on ourselves because of our own decisions and actions. But there's also trials that God commands to be sent. Trials that are forced upon men through no fault of their own, like the seamen in verses 23 to 30. They go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters. They see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. There's nothing like a seaman or a fisherman to understand the waters. For he that is God commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind which lifted up the waves thereof. And they mount up to the heaven and they go down to the depths and their soul is melted because of trouble. And we've got the, the imagery there, how many of them, reeling to and fro on these waves, staggering like a drunken man out of control and becoming to their wits end as they, as they don't know whether their ship is going to make it through. And as they become more desperate, 
In verse 28, they cry unto the, to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distress. He, that is God, makes the storm a calm, so that the waves are still. And they are glad because they be quiet, so he, that is God, bringeth them into their desired haven. So you can see, trials that we bring upon ourselves and trials that God commands to be sent, there's a result in verse 13. These people being subject to them cry. Verse 19, they cry unto Yahweh. In verse 28, they cry unto Yahweh. And what happens? Well, God responds. Verse 14, verse 20, and verses 29 to 30, he delivers them. There's a problem. They all see troubles as trials. And during the trial, they're unhappy, take the trial away, and they're happy again. Trial comes, and we need God, take away the trial, and we think we no longer need God. That is a problem. So the psalmist cries in verse 8, 15, 21 and 31. He says, Oh, that man would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. You can see that in those verses. Well, the second part of the psalm, Psalm 107, verse 32 to 43, entitled, The wise learn the meaning of God's covenant mercy. We get that from verse 43. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So <clears throat> the psalmist is really making another contrast. Early, he says at the end of each of those examples, Oh, that man would learn. But here, at the end of verse 43, we see the wise who, in the end, have learnt. Well, what things do they observe? Because in the preceding verses, there's a whole list of the trials of life, given by illustration of opposites. You see that from verse 33. For example, in, in verse 38 to 39, he blesses them, this is God also, so that they are multiplied greatly and suffereth not their cattle to crease. And again, they are minished. That means to, to be diminished or to make small and brought low through oppression, affliction and sorrow. So it's not really any different to the first part of the psalm, except that verse 43, they have come to learn that God is in control and to understand the mercy and the character of the Lord. So <clears throat> we read in the conclusion in verse 41 to 43, Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction. That is, the poor in spirit. Those who have exalted God in their thoughts and who correspondingly feel less and less worthy to be in his presence, he setteth them on high from. And if you look at your margin, uh, it actually has the word after. So he setteth them on high after affliction. And he maketh him families like a flock. The ESV has, he makes their families like flocks. So it has the implication of, of many children, of a, of a blessing. Verse 42, the righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. The ESV has all wickedness, shuts its mouth. And verse 43, as we've read before, whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand. And what are they going to understand? The loving kindness, the mercy of the Lord. In the end, the wise shall understand the character of God. 
So as we said earlier, the presence of evil in this world is absolutely necessary for the development of God's character in his children. And that is the reason above all else that God allows evil and suffering. It's clear from Genesis 2 that knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil must come together. It's clearly the conclusion of the redeemed in Psalm 107. That only through the existence of suffering can God one day fill the earth with his glory and his goodness. The Bible teaches that this was true for Jesus, just as true for Jesus as it is for us. In Hebrews 5 verse 8, it tells us that Jesus wasn't born obedient, but that rather, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In John chapter 13 and sorry, 15 verse 13, it tells us this greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the greatest act of love required the greatest act of sacrifice. Or again in Hebrews 12 and verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So Jesus also looked forward to joy. And lastly, remember that this present time of evil and suffering is not going to last forever. It is going to pass away forever in the kingdom. And we have other quotes in the Bible that allude to this. Isaiah 35 and verse 10, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Revelation chapter 21 and verses 3 to 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne crying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. What's he going to do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Again, Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Now, we can't pretend to understand why every good or every terrible event happens in our lives, and I'm not suggesting that we should try. Maybe in 10, time, ten years' time, we'll look back and see how those events have shaped our lives, or maybe we won't. It's in the hands of God. Life is not easy, but it is in the hands of God who knows what is best for us and cares for us very much. And it's important to understand paradoxically that it is the bad times that make the good times good. And if not in this life, then certainly in the next. Matthew 5 and verse 4. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So grief truly is the price we pay for love, but only in this life. Our final ending will be one of happiness. And perhaps the most important lesson to take from this, as we have seen from Psalm 107, is that there is nothing automatic in suffering that will develop godliness in us. God is the potter, we are the clay, and whether or not we allow God through his grace to mould us into something beautiful Somebody that reflects his character is a choice that we alone can make. It is the wise who use the pain and the suffering in their lives for something better. 
So if we are sorry to see someone suffering, then good, let us go and help them. If we are sorry to be suffering ourselves, then at least, even in hindsight, years later, let us try to grow from the experience. And for those who are suffering, what can you do to help yourself? Well, don't be afraid to ask for help. Talk to friends and family about how you are feeling or consider joining a support group. Pray. Our loving Heavenly Father hears and he answers prayer. Take care of your physical health. As we said earlier, grief can be exhausting, so it's important to to have a, a healthy diet. Manage stress. Lighten your load by asking friends or family members or work colleagues to help you with chores and commitments. Relaxation and gentle exercise can also be helpful. Do things you enjoy, even if you don't really feel like doing them. Read or listen to a psalm. You know, those, those moments in the middle of the night when you wake and you're wrestling there and you just can't get back to sleep. Put on Alexander Scoresby, Scorby, whatever his name is, and have a listen to him reading one of those psalms. How can you help a person who is experiencing grief and loss? Well, often it's the simple offer of love and support that is the most important. Ask how they're feeling and then listen. Each day can be different for someone who is grieving. Take the time to understand them and what they're going through. Talk about everyday life too. Their loss and grief does not have to be the focus of all your conversations. Ask them how you can help. A few home-cooked meals, doing the shopping or going walking with them, doing something enjoyable with them can help pass the time for someone who's uh, grieving. And make sure that you follow through with promises. Do what you said that you would do and encourage them to seek professional support if that grief does not seem to be easing over time. So it's true that suffering is never easy to witness or to live with. We all understand this. But it is how we can develop our Father's character and follow our Lord Jesus Christ who has trodden this path before us. And that always has been God's plan from the very beginning 